Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 23. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. This has been a really good week. I'm just wrapping up a project for work. If you hear that, just as I was saying, hello, Rob, my Mac started whirring really loudly because it is ripping a DVD in the background that I cannot stop. What's the DVD that's ripping? Well, it is a lecture called One Human Family. Oh, cool. By the speaker, Dr. Carl Wieland from the 2012 Supercamp. Yeah. And I did a little bit of editing for it, but it was a rush job and we'll be getting it off to the replicators here in the next day or so. Cool. That's a very important topic. It's a super topic, super execution on the, on the subject. And considering it's done by a person who's not from the States, very different perspective on race and racism worldwide and the history that other countries know that we don't know about, like Australia, Mm -hmm. South Africa, England. Germany, you know, places that most Americans don't study. It's not very often we've brought up something like that, that we were working on that's becoming available to the public, just so everyone knows it's not available right now. So it takes a little while to get these replicated and to get them to the various headquarters around the world. So if you're interested, let me know. And I'll put a link in the show notes when the day comes uh, and mention it then that'll, that'll be a couple of months away. I wanted to bring up, too, that I got a chance to see you today. That was wonderful. It was very it's nice. It's so nice to see you again. Like We haven't actually seen each other face-to-face in, what, three or four months? <laughs> yeah. And considering we work together? Man, this coronavirus is weird. It is. I, I'm kind of tired of it. But I, my wife made us these uh, face masks, and I got to use it for the first time. It felt pretty good. I think I look ridiculous, but it gets the job done. But no one can know who you are. See? That's right. Yeah, but see, later I was out in another public place wearing the mask and a, a woman, I'm guessing a little bit older than me, she stopped me and said, hey, excuse me. And I was like, yeah, she looked like she was trying to place my face. You know, she's trying to figure <laughs> out who I was like she thought I. But see, the thing is, I'm wearing the mask. So why would you try? Anyway, she says, hey, are you in production? And I am like, <laughs> well, yeah, uh... I am. And so I had no earthly idea who this woman was. She kind of looked like the French woman from the TV show Lost, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't her. I watched like two and episodes of Lost. I was so bored. I, never, I couldn't keep going. So anyway. <laughs> oh, I loved it. <laughs> I must have watched most of it two times through. Wow. So the uh, this woman, though, she's not French and he's, she's not Lost. And she says, are, are you in production? And I say, well, yeah. So I figured she knew who I was. And then she jumps into Georgia Territory Hollywood Productions. And, and I'm like, oh, oh, no, I, I'm not in that at all. Then she explained, oh, I thought you were this person I knew who worked on a light crew on a set and oh, you know, did the background. And I was like, no, no, I have nothing to do with that. That's Explain to her what I do do. It is surprising how much uh, film industry is right around this area. I mean, I just, it is. I ran past a, uh, it, it's, now, half a mile from my house on a little side road, but you can see it if you pay attention from the main road. It's this big Atlanta film studio warehouse. I don't know what they do there, but it's right, you know, right off the road here, and we're west of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And you know that um, just south of our office on Florence Road, on the right-hand side, is a warehouse. It used to be like a furniture distribution place. Mm-hmm. Do you know they filmed several movies in there? One of them with Robert De Niro. I did not. A couple other famous people. Yeah, they, it was just, it, it, it doesn't surprised. say movie studio. It's just a bunch of loading docks, but apparently they made a big soundstage in there and they used it for several movies. 
Wow. Is that the one that has like all the scrap metal inside of a fence around it on the outside? Or is it in one of the back buildings behind no, our offices? No, no, no. Yeah. South of south of the highway on the right hand side, right next to the okay. comet trail. Yeah. And it's, it's got all that weird stuff behind the fence. And like, what is that pile of stuff? And you don't know what it is. Exactly. Ooh, interesting. And I know that the one of the Marvel Studio buildings is not too far away either. I really? know someone who builds the sets for Marvel. Yeah. Oh, cool. Hey, my DVD is done. It just popped out of the toaster. All right. I do know that every once in a while when I see a film and I recognize it, like, you know, Pet Cemetery. as soon as I saw the background, I said, oh, that's in Sonoy, Georgia. And sure enough, that's where it was filmed because there's no other place in the world that has this flat granite ground like that. Or in, huh. um, uh, uh, which, uh, which movie was it? Jennifer Lawrence, maybe? Was it one of the, you know, Three Fingers Up in the Air uh, whistling? Hunger Games? Yeah, Hunger Games, yeah. maybe. It, that or it was one of the other, you know, super famous disaster movies of that genre. They're down by a river in this old house. Well, that's a sweet World of Creek State yes. Park. And they're like, oh. they're, they were inside the fence. You're not allowed to go inside the fence, but they were inside the fenced off area and, and these ruins. Oh, interesting. And the ruins was an old uh, yarn mill that yeah. the Yankees burned down. And they put all the people that work there on a train and shipped them north and they never came back. They like they oh, emptied the town out. They just evacuated the town oh. and there go the people because they didn't want any of those workers staying in the south because they were productive and they knew how to make stuff that was good for the south. So they just got rid of them. <laughs> terrible i recently was at that spot and i just took out my phone and i was taking pictures and video clips of the ruins and you can easily get your camera lens in between the the fence and cut them out of the shot so you can get cool. just the just the grounds it's really cool. neat anyway anything going on with you you're working on how many book projects now one that we're going to sell to the boss that the my co-author and I are incredibly excited about. And it's like unlike anything ever written, but I can't tell you quite yet. Nice. Uh, none, one that oh. he told us to do that we're working on, which I'm excited about because it's fun. It's about animals. Another one oh. that I'm editing that somebody else in the office has written, which is really good. I'm enjoying it a lot. One that just got finished. And then one which is I've been trying to work on for about 15 years uh, about human genetics which I'm incredibly oh, nice. excited about. And my co-authors finally gotten on board and is really starting to churn stuff out. And we're going to um, knock the socks off the world when we say that Adam and Eve were real. That is awesome. So when do you think these books begin to start seeing the public? Any one of those timeline is about a year from now. The other one, okay. the one the other person has written, I'm, I'm editing now. So it'll, you know, a couple of months from now, it'll go into layout. That'll be the first one that's finished. Okay. I'm excited. I, I want to read those books and talk about them on the show. There's another one called Biblical yeah. Geology 101 that I'm the co-author on and we're finished. So that one should be first. That one's in layout right now. Excellent. Yeah. I want to talk about the books when they're coming out as they're coming out. Great on idea. The show. Well, then let's get to the topic today. We got to talk about the main topic, which is a huge topic. It's a uh, global in proportions. It is. You wanted to talk about maps. Now, are you talking about like big on the macro and the micro level, macro, micro, like small town maps and big world maps too? Uh, yeah, I'm thinking big world maps and I'm thinking ancient big world maps and how people figured out how to map the world. Oh, I, this is going to be good. And one of my favorite subjects of many, but this is really one of the ones that I've spent many years studying. And I just had this desire to have 
a whole collection of ancient world maps hanging on my walls. I actually have nice. I have images of them on my computer, which I've had for years. But I was like, I want to print these out and put them up on my wall or somehow become a rich millionaire and buy them at art auctions. It's always been one of my dreams. Now, my dad always had like the gold foiled world maps, you know, in the, the yeah. home office and library. I wanted I like it. It's it, it definitely reminds me of my dad's base, though. So I always wanted to go for right now. I have in my shopping cart waiting for later a map of Narnia that looks old world. That's I, cool. I, I'm really interested in. Yeah. I thought about getting that one and Middle Earth. Yeah, definitely put up a map of Middle Earth in amidst all these other ancient maps. That would be really cool. <laughs> I up. saw recently a, a map of the Holy Lands. And it was written, or the way it was drawn, it looked very, very, very similar to Tolkien's map of Oh, of I gotta Earth. find this. This sounds great. Um, yeah, I put it up on Middle Facebook East, probably a Middle year Earth ago, six months style. ago. And it's, the lettering was very similar, but it was in Latin, I think. So, you know, it wasn't, it looked like Elvish or something like that, but it's Latin. And the way the mountains are drawn and the rivers. And the cool thing is that, like in so many other ancient maps... North is not up. How is that? Why is that? East is up. I'm looking at the map now and I'm seeing it in a totally different light. This is changing everything to say that. Ancient people oriented their world towards sunrise. Oh. (laughs) So the sunrise is up. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) So if you're looking at that map. That changes everything. Yeah, the the sun would come over your head, not left to right, if you're looking at the sun. From the perspective of the map. Oh, my word. Uh, this is going to change it all. I'm looking at several different renditions of the map, and I, I just cannot see it the same way anymore. Apparently, wow. the first people to navigate with a North Star were uh, the people of Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenicians. N- yeah, mentioned in scripture. Yes, but they taught other people, hey, that star there never moves. What? Yeah, that one, it just sits right there. Oh. So that's a fixed point in the heavens. Oh, and apparently no one ever thought oh. of that before. They're trying to get east and west Brilliant. right, but they couldn't get north correct. So think about making maps before you had a fixed reference point. It would be pretty much <laughs> impossible. Wow. Now they're so important to everything, our entertainment, navigation, obviously. So much of what we've done with invention and yeah. education. I remember when Google Earth first came out, 1995, maybe four, somewhere in there. It's right after I got my PhD. I was working at this engineering company and I downloaded uh, Google Earth onto my, my office desktop. And the boss and the IT guys were not very happy because back then bandwidth was pretty limited. I mean, we didn't yeah. have high speed huh. internet like everyone has now. It was expensive and, you know, engineering company, large files being sent and received. And well, I just opened up Google Earth and I left it as my background on my computer. (laughs) And because back then (laughs) you could click on the world and move your mouse and let go and you could spin the world and it would keep on spinning. And so I would (laughs) I would just do a slow spin and I would have that behind my Word document or my GIS something I was working on or whatever it was and I kept on minimizing all my documents to see where in the world I was and watch the world fly by really slowly and if you did it correctly <laughs> you could spin across earth a lot if you did it incorrectly you'd be across the Pacific Ocean for most of the time 
or you, you know not much land but in a couple of areas oh, yeah. in a straight line taking a great circle route it's mostly across land you may be over the arctic circle and down across russia and mongolia or something like that but still it was amazing i I just stared. I can't believe how many hours I wasted watching the earth pass by beneath me. <laughs> that is awesome. Because, you know, all the other subjects we've talked about, geography is yeah. literally one of my favorite subjects in the world. Did, is this something that you cared about as a child or no, later in life? No, it was, it was actually the subject that made me love learning for the first time. I was about 19 or 20, and I was working at... Uh, the Environmental Protection Division of the state of Georgia in downtown Atlanta every other semester at Georgia Tech to help pay for college. So I did that for like three or four years. And one of my friends, fellow nerd, comes up to me and he slaps a piece of paper on the table. And he goes, Rob, all 50 states and capitals, go. And he walked away. <laughs> and there was, there was 100 blanks written down. 50 states, 50 capitals. So out of 100 possible things, yeah. I got a 50%. Well, that's not bad for a pop quiz. True, but I had never studied geography. I had never studied the states. I never learned them in school. I'm Iowa, Nebraska, that whole strip of states. I, I, I skipped over them. And so my country was like too short. It, was, it wasn't wide enough east to west because I forgot about those states. And I was embarrassed. And so I said, that's it. I'm going to learn these. And so him and I, that semester, we learned all 50 states and capitals, all the Canadian provinces and their capitals, Central and South America countries and capitals, Europe countries and capitals, including things that were then part of the Soviet Union. Because we said, oh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, they need to be countries again. So we learned their capitals. Now I've actually been to those countries, strangely. Um, and, and Yugoslavia also. So when the, the wars in, under Clinton's time, uh, the wars in Yugoslavia happened, well, I knew Croatia mm -hmm. and Serbia already. And we learned all the African countries and capitals and major islands. And that took a long time. There's like 56 countries. We went across Asia, wow. Australia, and then we petered out in the Pacific Ocean, all the island nations that the semester ended. But I had all those things committed to memory. And I honestly, if I sat down, I could probably get 50% of them now. Because, you know, you do forget. Your, your brain doesn't hold that information in your head unless you're constantly refreshing it. But I, I could right. probably write down half the capitals of half the countries in the world. Now, some of them changed. How do you like to memorize that kind of thing? Do you well, use flashcards or are you just reading about them? We taught ourselves a way to, both of us were biologists and biologists, to be a biologist means you have to memorize massive amounts of material. It's like being a historian, <laughs> just tons of facts and figures to memorize. But what we did was every day when we came into work, we sat down with a piece of paper, blank piece of paper, and we would draw very vague shapes, circles, ovals, whatever, of the country or the or the state and we'd draw a circle and name the capital of each one georgia atlanta florida tallahassee you know da 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 and it would be a really really terrible map but we go through everything we had learned the whole world and then we correct what we missed and put it away and the next day we do it again and so every time you correct what you miss you're putting that into your brain and mm. by doing that, you might miss 50. And then the next day, you're going to miss 30. And the next day, you're going to miss 20. Next day, you'll miss five. You might not ever get those last couple of ones in your head for some strange reason. But 90, 95% of it, you can get without trying. Just by, you know, write down what you know, correct it, and put it away. No flashcards, no memorize, 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 memorize. It, it's literally 
little bits of memory 24 hours apart and we learned the world. That's a good method. I mean, that, that makes total sense. I've heard, a, I love following up on this kind of thing. I can't believe we haven't talked about geography yet on this podcast. Why not? I, I don't mean, know. In relation to other topics, we have a few other times, but yeah, yeah but not just, as a direct conversation. I, I never thought of it, even though I'm literally, this is one of my life's passions. I love geography. Mm. I love maps, all sorts of maps. The map room in the state of Georgia was in a building next to the Capitol building. And I worked really close there. And several times I went over to the map room and oh, I, nice. I bought a map. Like I bought one map. It was a big map of every road in the city of Atlanta on nice. one map. It was just beautiful. I had it right above my desk in college. It's just really, really amazing. I just, this is cool stuff. One of my favorite toys, this one summer I was staying with a family while my parents went to a conference. Really boring time because it was just a family with a couple of girls and I didn't. You, uh, you mentioned you know, this on an earlier, that much. early episode. I don't remember what they it was. They had though. a great toy. What was it? It was a globe and it would prompt you to find the capitals or find the countries. Yes. And then you'd have to tap it with a stylus to indicate, do, 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 do. You know, yeah, you got that one. And then you go through all the states or whatever. I loved that toy. I, I if I need to find something like that for my kids. Actually, no game, a game that I like to play with my kids is one person is looking at the computer and no one else can see it. And they're on Google Earth or, or Google Maps or something like that. And they, they pick a place on Earth and zoom up. And all the borders and the labels are turned off. So, so all you see is dirt or trees or whatever. And then everyone else comes looking at it. And the person in control zooms out and zooms out and zooms out. And the first person who guesses where it is wins. And they get to do it next. Oh, that's a good game. Yeah. And so it My wouldn't be very fair that. to say Africa because it's too big. <laughs> no. But if you're zoomed up on Mount Kilimanjaro, well, I don't know what Mount Kilimanjaro is. You might say East Africa. And you might have to zoom out a long way before there's a, a clue. Because if you're like in the, the Central African rainforest, there's nothing there. Or Borneo. Borneo is a lot different now. I flew over Borneo, uh, now called Kalimantan, in 2002. And it was hours of forest in an airplane. I mean, I'm in a jet plane. We didn't land in Borneo. We're in a little plane. We're in a, we're fl we flew from, we're going to Bali for a big international coral reef conference. So I went from Atlanta, or no, went from Miami to Los Angeles, Los Angeles to Taiwan, I think, and Taiwan to Bali. And from Taiwan to Bali, we flew over Borneo. And it was nothing but trees, like forever trees. And so if you <laughs> zoomed up on that and started zooming out, there would be literally nothing to see for a long time. Yeah. I remember just hearing about the desert in Australia and crossing the desert would take a long time, like many, many, many hours. The Nullarbor Plain in, in Western Australia. Do you know what Nullarbor means? No. It means no Boy. trees. Arbor, oh. as in Arbor Day. Null is nothing. So the Nullarbor sounds Australian, but no, it's an English phrase for no trees. And it's also the place with the, long, <laughs> the, the longest golf course in the world. Really? Oh. Yeah, it's like one hole here. You drive for a couple hours. The next little town, there's another hole. You drive for another couple hours, there's another hole. <laughs> That's <laughs> not <dragons>. right. <laughs> well, it breaks up the monotony of driving across one of the flattest places and treeless places in the world. I mean, <laughs> okay. Well, all right. That does sound a little bit more interesting. Okay, so going back though to what we began with, the early maps, I wanted to hear more about that. Let's talk about early maps. You, you were saying, one thing I would like to understand, in addition to, you know, east is actually up, and that means 
north is actually to your left. left? Yep. Anyway, yeah. Okay. So how did they figure that stuff out? Like before you could go up into space and take photographs of planet Earth. They, exactly. Were they just, yeah. Exactly. And when travel was so slow and even a, a well-heeled traveler only probably knew one route. Yeah. You know, even like Marco Polo. I mean, what did he actually see? He went all right. the way to China on one route. So he, he could map anything. He knew if you walked this way, you hit a mountain. Keep on going, you hit a desert. Keep on going, you have to cross a river. But he didn't know what was to the left and to the right. So even, wow. even that would be almost worthless to a map maker. And could you, I mean, imagine that, you know, civilization disappears and you're trying to figure out where you are in the world. I'll tell you what, here in Atlanta, <laughs> do you know how long it would take before we hit an ocean? Oh, right. And even if you hit an ocean... It'd be so easy. Yeah. Where are you? Even if you knew the world beforehand and, you know, everything else disappeared and you were just walking, 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 walking. Okay, you finally get to the coast after, you know, a year of walking. Where on your coast are you? On the Gulf Coast, the Atlantic Coast, Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, Virginia? Who knows? Easily could get mixed up. It would take, and it would take lifetimes for you to accumulate the data to even have a rough idea of where you were, unless you're in some really specific place, maybe England or Southwest England, you know, Cornwall. You can figure that out pretty quickly because you get the shape of Cornwall. Hey, this is Cornwall. Or if you're on Long Island where I grew up, it's 120 miles long and the widest is 15 miles. So traveling around that island, you found out pretty quickly that, hey, you know, there's an island everywhere I go here. It's really long and skinny. I think I'll call it Long Island. Oh, so that wouldn't be too hard. But if you're in any significant continental mass, imagine if you're in Central Asia, Siberia, uh, the, the plains of Hungary, where on earth are hmm. you? And where's, you know, what's the relationship between where you are and other places? Because you might need to know, like, how many days of traveling does it take me to get from here to the nearest trading post? Well, great, but is that a straight line? Or that's just the path. You can't tell it's straight or not. You don't know if it's, if it's a great circle, if it's the you know, shortest possible route on a globe. You just know it takes me so far to get from here to here. But once you're in that other place, you don't know necessarily, you can't triangulate, shall we say. You know, right. Paris, Brussels, and Liège. You know, that's something you could probably figure out. But add Moscow to that. <laughs> yeah. What? Oh. <laughs> no, yeah. you're... So, Mapping the world was a specialty. And in the Middle Ages, it occurred within families who kept all their cards close to their chest. They had secrets that they didn't tell other families. So you see maps that are Venetian maps or Florentine maps. They're not necessarily the same. And, and so industrial espionage was really important back then because everyone wanted an accurate map so that they can get a one-up on the competition as far as shipping and trading and things like that go. I would have imagined that some of the people would have not wanted an accurate map, but maybe if this was a country like Egypt, they would have wanted a map that just represented the glory of Egypt and the, their own values and empire and their prestige and made them look bigger than they actually were. Imagine that kind of thing had to have happened too. Yeah, another you know, massive problem is that countries lied about other countries. Yep, and lied about themselves to make themselves look good. But even Egypt, I mean, was there an ancient map of Egypt? Not that I'm aware of. Not e yeah, come to think of it. Until, okay, let's, let's skip ahead into the middle of our notes here. Uh, one of my heroes, I know we've talked about him before, Eratosthenes. He was the head librarian at the uh, Library of Alexandria, one of the eight wonders of the ancient world. 
And he was from southern Egypt, but now he's living in northern Egypt as a head librarian. And he knew that there was a well, which wasn't quite right, but he was close enough to the, uh, the tropic that he was almost correct, that at one day of the year, the sun hit the bottom of that well. Now, in any place south of that, there would have been two days a year where the sun hit the bottom of the well. But it was just one day a year, which means it was, at the, it was underneath the very northernmost part where the sun is directly overhead. And because he was a head librarian hmm. and had access to the records, and because Egypt every year apparently was precisely mapped, all the boundaries of everyone's farm and all that stuff. So they had apparently excellent maps of Egypt. He had a very good idea how far it was from Alexandria to a place called Syene, which is now called Aswan, where the Aswan Dam is in southern Egypt. Mm. And when he measured the angle of the shadow in Alexandria, it was seven degrees, not zero. So he reasoned he was seven three hundred sixtieths around the earth from that well. And once mm. he knew that, <laughs> he knew the circumference of the earth. That is awesome. The problem is that we don't know what, what unit of measurement he used. He used a stadia. That's not very helpful because it's not, it's not like a kilometer. <laughs> and but we still understood how he got, he, what his formula was. So yes. we could imitate that. Yes. And it, but if, if he used one particular stadia, he was only like 70 miles wrong. But by 200 BC, we knew the size of the earth. I mean, everyone already knew it was round. That's not a debate. But they also knew exactly how big the Earth was, which is unbelievably cool, which is why Columbus was an idiot, because Columbus was wrong. We, we talked about this in an in earlier episode, too. Columbus thought the right. Earth was about two-thirds the size it really is, because he had a document that was written in a foreign language with a different unit, and he just converted it to the units that he used, and the difference was like miles to kilometers. <laughs> And so his earth was six-tenths the size it really was. And the scholar said, no, Columbus, you're going to die. You're not going to make it to China. And he would have died, except he ran into North America halfway across. Actually, less than halfway across. <laughs> yeah, there's no way he would have made it to China, according to the real size of the earth. So this is why maps are so important. I mean, world history yeah. turns on, on a map. But the early maps are, are just strange or convoluted. It, it takes you a while to stare at it to figure out, oh, that's Italy. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, there's a red, that's a Red Sea? Oh, that's a weird way to look at it. And you'll see that the, um, very often they'll have um, like the bays and promontories and things like that accurate, but the directions are wrong. They knew that by sailing from here to here, oh, there's a, there's a, a cliff or a bay or a harbor or something. And then if you sail further on another day or two, there's another one. So they, they mark all those because they're navigators but they don't necessarily right. going in the right direction. So you can't use the map to navigate long distances unless you go from one point to the next point to the next point to the next point, and then you might be able to do it successfully. Because again, a lot of this is done before the invention of the compass. Now we had magnetic compasses by, um, by Renaissance period when all these really awesome, cool maps are coming out. But before that, no compass, no fixed north star, and... The, their descriptions of things is just really strange. Hmm. There's a famous uh, a Viking ruler of Sicily, King Roger II. Just an amazing person. Even though he was Roger I of Sicily, he was Roger II because his father was Roger I. But he was the first king of Sicily uh, from the Vikings. Did you know that the Vikings had conquered Sicily? I don't remember that. Well, yeah, this is a, around the year 1000, just after the year 1000. And Roger II 
was a Renaissance man, even though this wasn't the Renaissance yet. The Vikings were strange people. I mean, they, they would comb their hair every day and take baths once a week, whether they needed it or not. <laughs> I, just, I, I just read something uh, one of our mutual friends had posted on Facebook about one of the English chronicles chroniclers was complaining that the Viking men were stealing all the English women because how good they looked. <laughs> he, he's the guy who said they, they comb their hair and beard every day. They take a bath every week. <laughs> Well, then so the English, English girls are like, oh, Viking. Oh, come on. Do it too. <laughs> Get with it. So not only did they conquer vast swaths of Europe all the way east into Russia, and yeah, they made all the way down the, the, the Volga River to the Black Sea and to Constantinople. I mean, the Varangian Guard were very important in later um, Byzantine history. But they also conquered Sicily which have been conquered by the Moors and conquered by these people and conquered by those people. But, but they conquered Sicily and Roger II was a scholar and he tried to accumulate knowledge from all around the world. And he had a Muslim working for him. Hmm. His name was um, pronounced Al-Idrisi, something like that. Um, I'm terrible with, with Muslim names. And that man was tasked with making a map of the world. Oh, huh. And the two, he worked hard on it too. So the two of them worked really hard on it, but Al Idrisi was really the guy who did most of it. They built a map. Now he made a book of maps. We have, I think, copies of that still, but he made a physical map, a big map of the world. Anything that was on the map had been verified. So every time a ship came into the harbor, this guy would go down and interview the sailors. Where have you been? What do you know? How far can you go? What's in that direction? And they cataloged and they made a map of the Mediterranean, uh, Northwest Africa, Southwest Europe. It gets a little sketchy as you go further north in Europe. Uh, the, the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, the Black Sea. On a scale of one to 10, how accurate would you say that, that it was? Um, around Sicily, it was great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but the further away you go, the more wonky everything got because they were just using verbal statements from sailors and no one had triangulated places it's just if you go that way far enough you get to this place it's x number of days of sailing and you pass this cliff and it's really it was amazing because this is the first real good world map even though it was terrible it was a really good world map with a scholar who was actually really 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 trying to do it yeah huh. and he still failed yeah well noble effort it was a very noble effort. I, I give him props, and I wish that map was still around because I would love to see it. A couple centuries later, maybe 12th century, I don't think 11th century, I'm not exactly certain. It's, these things appear in the world. They're called the Portalon charts. Portalon charts. Portalon. This is one that I want. I want a, a copy or even an original. I can't imagine anyone could own original unless you have millions of dollars. But they're weird looking, and you look at the map, and then you realize the, really, the reason it looks weird because that's a sheepskin. Oh, it has a head and legs. <laughs> it's not a square map. It's on vellum or something like that. And oh, it's once you realize that and they would use like the head for some distant island. What? Yes. And they are fantastically cool. Interesting. They'd have a compass rose in the middle with, depending on the map, a number of lines. Let's say there's 16 lines, one for each of the, the cardinal compass directions. North, south, east, west, north, north, east, south, south, west, all those, all those things. 16 of them. And those lines would radiate outwards. And then around the map, there'd be 16 compass roses, each one of them with a line joining the others. So it was like a triangular grid. 
It wasn't our longitude and latitude system. Huh. It was a set of stars. And here's the weird thing. The Portalon charts are accurate east and west. Huh. North and south is easy because you can get extremely accurate measurements of how far north or south of the equator you are using an astrolabe, uh, shadows of sticks on the ground. There's all sorts of ways to get a really good estimate of your latitude. Okay, that makes sense. Huh. But longitude is impossible. <laughs> you can't know how far east and west you are. All you know is the sun comes up and the sun sets. Wild. But you don't know how, how that is in relation to like Paris versus Paraguay. Yeah. You have no idea how far apart those places are. And plus, because of travel, because travel is so slow, there's no jet lag. You're adjusting to the time every single day as you're traveling. You, you don't notice that, hey, you know, I just flew from New York to London and all of a sudden the sun is setting. It's only five o'clock in the afternoon. I'm, you know, sitting at 10 o'clock at home or something like that. <laughs> there's no jet lag. There's no sense of change because you're moving so slowly across the globe. You cannot measure your longitude. And the Portalon charts are longitudinally accurate. Remember the other episode when we were talking about atoms and particles and energy, and you were saying how scientists get a little frustrated that we understand it all. We've basically figured out the really microscopic stuff. Well, I imagine it's got kind of got to be that way for explorers today who really nerd out about the maps yeah. that there's nowhere left to explore. Whereas for most of human history, without the maps as we have them today, there was so much mystery. So much of this is shrouded in misinformation and hearsay and guesstimates. That, that, honestly, that would be kind of fun. Yeah. Living in a world like that. I, I mean, for me, anyway. I don't think we could possibly manage to fly anywhere with that kind of mapping. But Back in Greek days and centuries afterwards, a long time afterwards, they talked about the Antipodeans, <laughs> the people who lived on the other side of the world, or if they even existed. See, all people knew is that the further south you went, the hotter it got. Therefore, there must be a place where it's impossible for humans to live. So no one could ever get to the southern latitudes because you die. It would be too hot. Now, for someone in Europe or even northern Africa, that kind of makes sense because you hit Africa, you start going across the desert, the Sahara Desert. And I mean, is there anything south of that? Well, maybe a couple caravans here and there if you're in you know, that specific area. But there was a general sense that it was impossible. And so it was wild speculations of what the Antipodeans were like, or even if there was anyone down there. And it's just amazing to think that because, you know, if they had explored well enough, they would have known that you could go down the Red Sea and you could go down the coast of Africa. But that kind of connectivity really didn't exist until the Arabic conquest of the area. And we actually see that in genetics also. When you look at the genetics of ancient uh, Egyptians, they don't have African DNA. They don't have sub-Saharan African DNA. They have very European, let's call it Mediterranean DNA. It's not until after the Arab conquest that you start getting sub-Saharan African DNA in Egypt, hmm. which means there was genetic connectivity, but the people, but before that, you couldn't just sail. You'd have to pay a tax every time you got to a new city and you couldn't sail to the next city. Oh, no, no, no. This is the trading port the foreigners come to. And now you turn around and go home. <laughs> so it was not easy to get information about foreign countries. The Portalon charts, though, 
I mean, they, you, you look at it, there's Italy. It's exactly Italy. You know exactly what it's a map of. Right. Or Spain or Northwest Africa. When you look at them, the coastlines are exaggerated. Very often the rivers that go into the continents are drawn a little ambiguously. And sometimes they, they're just completely wrong. But the coastlines are spot on. But all the, all the features are too big. Oh, it's because they're navigational maps. Yeah. A sailor from here to here, you're, there, there's a bay. Well, they draw the bay. And it's much too big compared to how it is in the real world. But if you were there, it would be really handy to here's the shape of the bay. There's the next one and things like that. Right. And they're, they're beautiful. And a lot of them, strangely, unlike a river, they have a sinuous snake-like green thing going across the Sahara Desert. Which is bizarre because the Sahara Desert used to not be a desert. Oh, right. There are giant, giant lakes there. And lots of evidence of the occupation of people who were fishing and crocodiles and hippopotamuses and you know, all sorts of animals that need water were living in the Sahara Desert. Wow. And so these ancient maps have this... They're, they're designed way after this place became a desert, but it was like they put a mythological wet area in North Africa. <laughs> and it's unlike the other areas. You know, Europe, there's a river drawn. But this one is like this, this green snaky thing. It's just, it's, just, it's just weird. That is amazing, though. I don't huh. pretend to know what that is, and I would love to know. I'm not even sure if we know. So you have the, the Portalon charts. And here's where it gets into La La Land. <laughs> now we are. Well, there have been people throughout the decades who have suggested some, let's say, alternate history based on the Portalon charts. Um, Charles Hapgood was a uh, uh, submariner in the U.S. Navy, and he um, wrote a book called ancient, uh, Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings, where he claimed that some of these maps, specifically the Piri Race map of 1513, was drawn prior to the Ice Age, and it mapped Antarctica. We did not map Antarctica until the 1960s when we invented ground-penetrating radar and we could see through the ice. It's <laughs> so recent. <laughs> yes, and so that was a big deal. Um, another one by Gavin Menzies called uh, 1620, The Year the Chinese Discovered America. An amazing book. It's got to be wrong, but oh, it's so tempting to believe him. See, the Chinese, back a long time ago, 15, 1600s, they were sending out massive voyages of exploration and they were building ships, wooden flat bottom ships, you know, giant junks, the size of Noah's Ark in the Bible. And they built many of these, at least several of these, shall we say. And each one of the treasure ships had a fleet with it of a couple hundred ships. They, they explored the Philippines. They probably discovered Australia. They made it at least as far as blank, blank, blank. Hawaii? Big Island off the south coast of, of South Africa. Madagascar. They made it at least as far as Madagascar. So they explored the Indian Ocean and parts of the Pacific Ocean. He claimed that they reached the west coast of North America and the east coast of North America. One of them by going across the Pacific, the other one by rounding Cape Horn. Because once you're in Madagascar, Cape Horn is not too far away. He claims that one of them, I think, visited Venice or something like that, which he claims then propelled Marco Polo to go to China. Now, I don't, there's no historical record in Europe of any of this. I don't really believe it, but it's a fascinating tale, and it has to do with maps and the way people thought the Earth was. But this pure race map, if you look at South America, it's got Brazil. It nails it. 
until about you get far south is about Rio, and then it starts getting really strange. <laughs> well, probably what he did was he combined information from multiple charts. Now, see, 1513, right? Well, Columbus didn't hit America till 1492. So this is only 21 years after Columbus. They hadn't explored that much yet. And they might still have thought that North America and South America were China. Oh. So what he apparently did was he combined various charts, which he said he did. Yeah. Several from Columbus and other people and Chinese charts and just added them together, which is why the coastline is so weird once you're not in Brazil. Right. So no, ancient man did not map Antarctica, even though I would love for it to be true. I don't think it's true. I don't think we really understood the world until actually the last couple of centuries. Wow. So somehow, I, I honestly, I don't know how you can be longitudinally accurate. Now you can use triangulation and surveyors use triangulation all the time, but you can't, like you said before, a map is flat. Yeah. The earth is not. Right. And the way I've heard this explained is just that because it's spherical, if you try to unwrap it off of a ball and spread it out, it's not going to be square or rectangle. It's going to be... Nope. Nope. Rounded and so uh, every curve there, it's all curves. And so it doesn't want to squish out. Yep. And you can't do it. It's impossible. And if you want to be accurate in a local region, the further away you go, the less accurate you'll be. So you can't use triangulation. It's impossible. It is one of the best examples I can think of where it helps to use skewing to skew things to just understand them on a map even though it is fudging on all the details. It's fascinating. Yep, yep. It's, it's 100% impossible. But you can do a good job in a local area. And so the Mediterranean Basin, they nailed it. And the further away you get outside of that, the more wonky things get. But how did they do that? They would have to make tens of thousands of navigations across all these seas to triangulate everything using compasses. They would need the compass. And you need to know your latitude and so maybe you can get longitude out of that, but still, it, it, they appear out of nowhere. There's no, there's no predecessors. It's boom, here's a chart. There's no evidence that people figured out how to do this. And so it's an absolute and total mystery. Maybe they, you know, this is after the Crusades. Maybe they stole them from Constantinople. Maybe they got them from the Muslim world, but there's no evidence in the Muslim world that they had these things. It's just a mystery. And it's a really cool mystery. And it's one of my favorites. Yeah, that is fascinating. Hmm. So we have to fast forward another 500 years before we finally can know longitude. Oh, okay. We're talking 1750s. Before that, you never knew how far east and west you were. So the whole time they're sailing across the ocean to get to North America, South America, nobody knew how far it was. Wow. <laughs> they could guess based on how fast their ship was going. But Matthew Morey hadn't mapped out the world's uh, ocean currents yet. He read about the paths of the sea in the Bible. Like a trail or something. And said, oh, there must be paths of the sea. Oh. Boom. He discovered ocean currents. Well, like the north and south equatorial currents and the equatorial countercurrent and the Gulf Stream, the Kurashio current that goes up uh, into, um, hits Japan. Or the current that goes up from Antarctica and goes all the way up the west coast of South America. Or the one that comes down. Um, the west coast of North America. They knew currents were there, but they didn't realize how connected they were. They didn't know you could float literally from Barbados 
westward across the Caribbean, northward through the Gulf of Mexico, southward out the between Florida and Cuba, all the way up the north coast or the eastern coast of North America, and then out across the ocean to England. (laughs) Yeah. And so if you're trying to do dead reckoning based on the direction and speed of your ship, you actually don't know where you are ever. And so it is always perilous, especially at night. If you think you're close to land, you better not be at full sail at night or in a storm. And so ships were getting wrecked constantly. It was a massive, risky endeavor. In fact, that's one of the things, to open up a brand new uh, can of worms, that's one of the things that led to the development of corporate law. And one of the greatest interventions of the West innovations of the Western world was the idea that people could pool money and no single person will be liable for what happened was brilliant because that is what led to the development of corporations which allowed people to do international trade. Hmm. Before that, if a ship sank, one person would be sued for everything that they were worth. It was his ship. But what they did was they distributed the risk and the corporation is treated like a person in a court of law. So you'd have a representative. And so if, if something happened, you could sue the corporation but not the people who own the corporation. Unless they did something, unless they, you know, did something nefarious and they pierced the corporate veil and now you're able to sue the person directly. Right. But the whole reason corporations exist is to protect the investor. And even though, you know, all these people, you know, Seattle's burning down right now, railing against corporate America. Ah, no, man. Corporations were the single greatest economic invention in world history. Right. And we would not have anything modern today if the corporation didn't exist. So ship crashes led to economic innovation, interestingly, because everyone wanted to spread their wealth around. They didn't want to invest it in one ship because there's a pretty good chance it wouldn't come back. And so the, the British Admiralty, they put out a cash prize, which they should have been doing throughout all of English history, getting all the smart people to work on hard problems. But this, this one was a phenomenal amount of money for someone who could figure out longitude. They called the longitude problem, specifically at sea. Because you can, you can kind of do it on land if you use triangulation. But if you're at sea, you don't know where you are. You know how far north and south you are, but you never know how far east and west you are. And so enter a man named John Harrison, one of my all-time heroes. This guy was uber genius, unbelievable genius. He, he was doing things in, with clockmaking that nobody ever thought of before. Like finally, he decided he could use rubies because they're frictionless. So have you heard of a jewel, uh, a watch that says, you know, 16 jewels yeah. in the movement? Yeah, well, that's Harrison's invention. Oh, using jewels nice. as pivots because they're slippery or using a specific woods from South America because they had a high oil content, so they're self-lubricating. Huh. Or the bimetallic strip, two metals joined together that would expand and contract at different rates depending on the temperature. So he could compensate for expansion and shrinkage based on temperature. Because if you want an accurate clock, how, how accurate could you make it if you just have a plumb bob? <laughs> yeah. He invented a clock that could be wound while it was still ticking. I mean, think if you have to wind a clock every day and it takes you 30 seconds to wind the clock. Where at the end of the month, you don't know what time it is anymore. Right. If you're trying to time... Something like, if you want to know where you are in the world, the sun moves at 15 degrees per hour. So 
If you're an hour off, you're literally, you could be 15 degrees around the world and not know it. And so he invented a clock wound and he invented the caged roller bearing, which um, is a, a bunch of cylinders and a bearing, not a ball bearing, but a roller bearing. He invented that and he, he starts putting all this stuff together and he makes this clock that gets put on a ship from, I think they went to Lisbon, from London to Lisbon. And it didn't keep very good time. On the way back, it kept better time. And he didn't win the prize because it had to be this much accurate after this many sea miles. And he didn't win the prize. The problem was that every time the ship turned, it would throw him, throw him off. Up and down is fine. But when it turned, it would throw off his clock because, you know, think of an old cuckoo clock or a, a grandfather clock, right? There's a thing hanging down, a big heavy thing, a pendulum, and it's swinging back and forth, right? Right. You can't use pendulums on a boat. <laughs> I'm just picturing someone trying to. (laughs) (laughs) It's not, it's not possible. You cannot use pendulums on a boat, but that's all they had. So he invented these clocks of these big, heavy balls on springs that would, that would bounce together and apart and bounce together and apart. And he went on and on. He he spent, I mean, many years. And the first one was a failure. The second one was a failure. And he finally came out with a working one in 1759. And what it was was a giant pocket watch. It's like an eight inch wide. It looks like a pocket watch. And he invented that style. And pocket watches in the future were all based on his ideas, including something, a really cool thing. It's called the grasshopper escapement. Huh? (laughs) You've probably seen um, maybe inner workings of a clock and it's a gear and it's a grabby thing that holds onto the gear. So the gear goes click. Well, once that grabby thing's hooked onto the gear, it's got pressure and it can't let go. But that grabby thing has another end that also clicks. And when one of them clicks, it moves the thing in between that pushes the other one into a position. And so that pops out and the thing rocks back and forth. It goes click, 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 yeah. click, click, click. He invented that. And so he finally made this clock that can go on a ship. And it kept accurate time. I mean, to the second over months. Wow. <laughs> Earlier on, we talked about um, the voyage of James Cook to Tahiti because they wanted to observe the transit of Venus in multiple places in the world in 1769. I think it was, uh, one was in 1761, eight years later, 1769. The next one was just a couple of years ago, and there's not going to be another one for another over 100 years. So they don't happen very often when Venus goes across the face of the sun. But in 1769, this is only 10 years after the invention of the chronometer. And Tahiti had just been, you know, kind of explored, settled by, by Europeans. It was one of the first islands that they knew the latitude of. Sorry, excuse me, I said it again. That they knew the longitude of. So just a couple of years after Tahiti is, is, I don't know, influenced by Europeans, they knew the longitude. So the English said, okay, you go to Tahiti. We know exactly where that is in the earth. We're going to be here in England and maybe a couple other places in the world. And everybody with a telescope, watch Venus cross the sun. And based on the time and the distance between these places, they were able to calculate using triangles how far away the sun was. <sighs> Incredible. And we wouldn't have been able to do it if Harrison had invented that clock. Man. Totally, totally awesomely cool. That is. Wow. There was a, a book called um, 
Longitude. It was a TV miniseries with Jeremy Irons called Longitude. Some guy in the early 1900s discovered Harrison's clocks at the Royal Observatory at Greenwich, just stashed away, and they had been rusting and falling apart. And he pseudo-restored them. He got them back into working order, shall we say, after many, many years of work. And they still work. Wow. And they're ticking in the National Maritime Museum in England, right near the Greenwich Observatory. You know, the Prime Meridian is right there, and all these amazing things is right there. And I remember we went to Greenwich on a, a CMI trip with uh, one of our other speakers, and we had, I said, I want to see Harrison's clock. So we ran down the hill to the Maritime Museum, and it was about to close. And the only thing I saw in the museum was Harrison's clocks. Nice. Two of them are still ticking, and they're mesmerizing to see them move. A third one was not ticking, and the fourth one, which is the one that actually was the first real chronometer, they, they don't wind it anymore because it needs oil. Wow. It's not self... And, and it hadn't been tampered. The other ones were tampered with to make them work, so that has, they lost some historical yeah. use. You know, the guy would take a part out and put a new part in sort of thing. But his other one is the original, and they don't wind it. It's just sitting there, and it's so beautiful. That's amazing. Huh. So the story of longitude and map making. Love there you it. have it. Yeah. That is incredible. Good stuff, Rob. Man, I love clocks and that, that stuff as well. Mm, interesting. You want to wrap up there? I just looked at the clock, which is why I kind of ended the way I did. Yeah, well, after a little editing, you know, I, what I do is I just trim out some silences. We'll get it down to our usual length. All right. Well, so I'm at an hour two right now, so that's why I did that. Yeah, I think it's a great length and I think it's a good place to end and I wouldn't want to add much to it because it would be a whole nother subject. And we took this mystery and we brought it around to longitude and the solving of longitude. Yeah, it's good. Awesome. Then thank you so much, everyone, for joining us on this quest through place and space and time. If you want to dig deeper into any of these topics, you can find links to the stuff that Rob discussed in the show notes on our website. You can hop over to nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 23. And if you're right there, the show notes are also available in with this episode in your podcast app. You should also check on Rob's content at biblicalgenetics.com, his Facebook page or YouTube channel, where you can see the videos and join discussions in the comments. If you want to catch up with me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter. And until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You have been listening to Equinox. Equinox.